Hi, everyone. Welcome back or welcome to the Fire the Canon podcast, the podcast where we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. Sometimes we have special guests on to discuss those books, and this is one of those times. I'm one of your hosts, Rachel. I'm the other host, Jackie. I'm the producer. My name is Theo. <laughs> and with us today, we have a special guest who is Michael Kellermeyer. Yeah. <laughs> He's a former English professor and lecturer. He taught for nine years um, at the college level, and he um, is also the proprietor of Old Style Tales Press. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word for it. <laughs> yeah. I'm always trying to figure out like what the, the best word, and proprietor just fits everything. So <laughs> Old Style Tales Press, um, I'll let Michael kind of describe, but it's very cool. And I have to say, Michael, um, you go by Michael, right? Not Grant or... Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah, because there's your two names are everywhere. <laughs> yeah, my pen name is M. Grant Kellermeyer, but I go by Michael personally. Okay. So. so, Michael, I love your website, and this, I think, might sound... It might sound like a backhanded compliment, but I promise it's not. It's an actual compliment. I love just like <laughs> it is so aughts style sort of, but yes, it's like yeah. very easy to navigate and it looks good. But it, mm -hmm. it just reminds me of the good days of the Internet. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a little intentional because I experimented with different styles and, and there were times when it was a little bit more contemporary. But I just love that kind of cozy, indulgent style that it currently has. So I'm glad you like it. That old style, perhaps? That old style, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do like it because it just reminds me of like being a like a kid or like a, a teenager mm -hmm. and, and like planning Halloween parties and you'd go on all these creepy websites. Your website is nice and spooky. <laughs> well, I'm glad that's what I'm shooting for. <laughs> we have Michael on because... If you're a subscriber to the podcast, as you know, we've been doing a little bit of a pre-Halloween mini-series. <laughs> I've called it our Washington Irving Blitz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we did an episode on the history, the life, whatever, of Washington Irving, who's truly one of history's greatest trolls. So mm -hmm. definitely listen to that episode. And we also have already released one where we kind of went over the plot of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And I'm not sure of the timing. It's either already been released or it'll come out <laughs> next week. But we have a Patreon bonus episode about Rip Van Winkle. So you'll either be able to listen to the whole thing or just part of it, depending on if you're a Patreon subscriber or not. But anyway, Jackie, while she was doing her research on Washington Irving, Jackie found Michael's website and messaged us and was like, I found this website. Can yeah. I ask this guy to come on the podcast? And we're like, sure, Jackie, go That's ahead. That's true. I should have said that because <laughs> I talked about how I love the, you know, the design of the website. I don't, I wasn't planning to talk about that, but um, <laughs> I found this, this essay, I guess, would you call it an essay that you wrote about Washington Irving? And yeah. I just loved it. I thought it was so well written and so interesting. And you had stuff that, um, I didn't find anywhere else in my research. So I was like, I'd love to just like pick this guy's brain. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm glad you found it. Uh, and to to kind of delve into the background of Old Style Tales Press, it began as a lot of great things begin kind of on the, the cusp of me leaving grad school and, and realizing, well, hey, you, you kind of have to do something with this. I graduated <laughs> in December and this was November where I got the idea. And it kind of generated from just like, I've had a lifelong love of classic ghost stories and weird fiction. That stuff is just not very well treated critically. It's not, there's not a lot of um, in depth analysis. 
of classic ghost stories or weird tales, you know, and I get an addition and it'd have like kind of a little five page introduction. That's mostly just a, a cribbing of like a Wikipedia article of their biography. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I can look their biography up online. I can find that stuff out. What I'd be more interested in is like, what's this work doing? What's it saying? What's it about? Mm-hmm. I just wanted to do four books. And I was like, you know, I want to do a collection of Victorian ghost stories Edwardian ghost stories. And I think it was like Lovecraft and Ambrose Bierce. And so far I've done two of those. I haven't done Edwardian ghost stories or Lovecraft yet, but, um, but then it expanded to like these 30, I think we're at 35 books now, Yeah. but yeah, basically just like wanting to give these stories that I think speak so deeply to very uncomfortable truths and experiences from the human experience, give them a, a more of a profound critical analysis as opposed to just like, these are some interesting stories and, you know, yeah, they keep you up at night. <laughs> yeah, spooky. <laughs> it's like, well, that's great. But like, why can't we treat them the same way we treat, you know, Hemingway or O'Connor or something like that? Like with some deep, like, let's have a discussion. Mm-hmm. So I started, you know, a website and then started doing footnotes and illustrations because I also do art. Oh, you do those illustrations? Yeah. Yeah, that's those crazy. are wow. my illustrations. I just didn't think you could be like good at art and good at the critique. I don't know, for some reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is hard to do. And website design. Yeah. <laughs> Triple threat. So, and that, that's why Proprietor is such a good name for it because it's, you know, it's just me. And, you know, I just do it. Like my wife helps with ideas and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's just me and my free time. Yeah. Um, but to, you know, to cut it kind of short, like, so, you know, I finally got a job as an adjunct that next spring and, that has pros and cons. One of the pros that is kind of, it's kind of sad, but it's, it's just, a, it's a good thing about it is you have a lot of free time mm-hmm. and not a lot of money. <laughs> so I was really motivated and I was really, um, you know, I had a lot of time in, in the sense that like I teach Mondays, Wednesdays, Friday. So, you know, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I work on books. That sounds so nice. <laughs> oh, you know, it honestly was, it's one of those things where you're young enough at that point, you know, I was like 20, 24, 23, 24, something like that. Mm. And you're young enough that you don't like really realize the, uh, the material costs of your life choices. So <laughs> you're, you're just in, you're in the moment, you're just enjoying it. So I, uh, I worked on that for, you know, eight years. Um, eventually I became a lecturer full time, um, at Indiana tech and it was a contract that wasn't going to necessarily be renewed. They were in a pinch. They needed someone, you know, to fill in a, a gap for a while, before they got a tenure track person. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I feel like I'm right and high. Like, this is great. I'm going to step out gracefully instead of like just being demoted back to adjunct. <laughs> and so for a couple of years, I worked as a financial coach at a nonprofit, um, you know, working with like vulnerable communities, helping people, you know, work with their budgets and stuff. And that was all before COVID. Um, and so then COVID hit and I was like, ah, this is crazy. Ah. It's super overwhelming. I think that, that sound really sums up <laughs> yeah. the, the sound uh. the whole world made. <laughs> yeah. And I, I did really enjoy that job. But by that point, Old South Tales had become like lucrative enough that I could make that my full-time thing. So now I'm also a stay-at-home dad. So Love I do it. still have my hands super full and I'm actually, pr- I'm doing less now hmm. than I did when I was an adjunct as far as like content production but I'm super cool with it because it's like, you know, I still get to do two beautiful things in life and, and mm-hmm. I'm having a blast doing it. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of a matter of juggling these different things. But yeah, it's it's definitely like if, if my five or 10-year-old self could see me, he'd be very happy. And that's, I think, <laughs> that's a great life goal. Like just knowing 
what do I do for my job is I make, because I always love like, you know, Wishbone and yes. great illustrated classics. And <laughs> you're speaking our language. <laughs> yeah. All those like 90s, um, you know, intro to, to great literature kind of stuff. And I would just spend so much time like doodling illustrations and but like I, I'd abridge these stories you know in my own my own language and give them illustrations and then staple them together so I'm doing my dream you know and and it's uh it's working out well and being a stay-at-home dad yeah that's it I have to say I saw Theo's face light up when you said stay-at-home dad he went <gasps> it's it's really funny my mom was a stay-at-home mom and when I was in uh, I think first grade they did a thing where it's like what do you want what you know when you grow up what do you want to be and I was like well I want to be a stay at home dad. So oh. <laughs> like in two different aspects, I'm achieving my childhood dreams. So wow. And I was going to say being a stay at home dad, you probably do just as much, if not more lecturing than you did teaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. She's, she's almost three. So there's not a, there's still that, that language barrier. There's more emotional <laughs> connection than there is logical connection, but it, it's getting there. Cause she's, she's super Gabby. So I love it. Aww. I think stay at home dads are coming in style because I did. Um, That's true. I know. A lot. I, I went to law school and we had a party, mm-hmm. some after party for an event that the law school held. And I remember like walking into a room and I saw a circle of boyfriends mm-hmm. of some of my friends who were law students. They had their shot glasses and they were doing a cheers and they were saying to being stay at home dads. <laughs> Honestly, it's a great life. I love yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> and so just to kind of clarify, because um, yeah. the press actually it prints books like the classic books you got yeah. you know you got your Dracula you got your you know um, picture of Dorian Gray you got you know all these kind of like classic horror books yeah mm-hmm. but what you add to it is basically annotating it and then adding these yeah. amazing illustrations which I didn't even realize that you did but the illustrations are really good thank you yeah so you can actually like buy the books from um, from there and I think you also have like an Amazon store right yeah yeah you can get them from Amazon and some of them from Barnes and Noble it just hmm. it kind of depends okay we're oh, working so on that. making all of them for, available from Barnes and Noble as well, but yeah, we we stand a small press, so <laughs> yeah, we do. So for audience members who haven't listened to our Washington Irving episode, which again you simply must, <laughs> is your press is it named after one of his many nom de plumes? It's Jonathan Old style. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I can't believe that you picked that. I mean, like you've done your research clearly, <laughs> but yes. Um, <laughs> and I have to admit, I'm not an expert on Washington Irving. I'm just like a, a deep, deep, deep fan. Well, you're you're more than any of us, and you're probably more than 99.9% of anyone else in the country. So. <laughs> that is probably true, yeah. Um, but yes, Old Style does come from Jonathan Old Style and the Old Style papers. So yes. I'm, I'm really happy you caught that. Yeah. Do you know his other pseudonyms? Oh, of course he does. Is that your favorite? That's what I had to know. Yeah, I love Jeffrey Cran. William Wizard. William Wizard, yeah. <laughs> we, we read them all out on our other episode but um i told them hey i want i want you guys to guess which one of these is the fake pseudonym and i'll read you the list and i didn't include anything fake i just they were all real and they were like yeah that one's gotta be fake that one yeah yeah right i was just gonna say so um i believe on your website it says washington irving's your favorite author is that right yeah it's and i will admit um in one respect it is a guilty pleasure so trashy yeah yeah he's he is an indulgence for me but i like there's something that I resonate with tremendously deeply with him. And so he's not the sort of guy that I would go to and say like, oh, this book will change your life. Mm-hmm. But like if it's a cold, drizzly day and I just want some like sassy, <laughs> overly indulgent um, guy who has like 
a sweetly optimistic worldview, but is also really cynical when it comes to like bullcrap. That's <laughs> my go-to. Like I just, I love he's he's such a hopeful, optimistic guy, but he also has this like biting cynicism, mm-hmm. and he combines, you know, like there's when it comes to his best fiction, it's all about harmonizing these different parts of himself, and I think all that time that he spent abroad. Um, and just feeling like I don't belong here. I don't really belong at home, but I love here and I love home, you know, and I find that so much more (laughs) endearing than say like your Ambrose Bierce or your HP Lovecraft, whom I also really enjoy, Mm -hmm. but who are just like purely cynical and there's no hope. And he's just such a, a cute little light of optimism that I called him cute too. I said, he's a cute human. Like he's just delightful. He is. He's a cute little guy. Yeah. Something that I do find kind of optimistic about Lovecraft is that the stuff that he is pessimistic about, it's like, get over it, bro. Like there are Italians in New York now who fucking cares. (laughs) (laughs) So you can kind of write off his pessimism because it's, it's just so silly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who looks different from you, is one day going to be near you. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I I agree. I feel like I also have these authors that, you know, it, it's not necessarily that I want to tell other people they're the greatest literature even, or even like music mm-hmm. or art or something. It's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's good, but like it means something to me. And I feel like I could get that sense from your essay. It's just that he was torn, right? He, he kind of had this like duality. Of, Super torn. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little more about that? Because I find that really fascinating. Yeah. So he, um, like one of the, the big detractions from him in the 20th century, think, uh, a thing that people commonly disliked about him was that he was a very um, moderate kind of milk toast seeming guy who didn't, you know, he wasn't like a firebrand on in either direction. You know, you look at like uh, a famous, you know, cynical New England Democrat like Nathaniel Hawthorne mm. or a, uh, you know, an, an equally idealistic New England Republican like Emerson. You know, he he was a person who really craved stasis and he create he craved kind of a cosmopolitan worldview where people were able to kind of like blend in and blend out of different societies and different polities and not feel like they're stuck to one. You know, he really craved that both literally and also in a more existential way. You know, he craved the ability to kind of be a chameleon and kind of like drift in and drift out, Mm -hmm. um, but do so authentically and in a, in a very sincere manner. Like he's not just like playing people. He just Hmm. wants to be able to, I I want to be with my New York friends and I also want to check out Birmingham and I want to like live in Spain for a while. And so he's torn between all these different things. And he got, I think branded as like a, a really having a limited imagination, being very, you know, politically and philosophically centrist. And I think he actually made a stand and, and one of the uh, subtitles in um, the essay you're referring to is a man with a message, because mm-hmm. I feel like Irving is a man with a message. And it's, it's a message that's very relevant to our times because it is urging humanity to find goodwill and commonality and to to like take walls down and he doesn't do it in it like a ham-fisted bible thumping kind of way where he's like we must tear down the walls you know but, but he's like you know like look at how silly and he's so like one of the things i love about him is how he just takes the piss out of <laughs> radicalism in either direction you know so many of his stories they're making fun of people who are just like so entrenched in their beliefs and in their convictions that they they won't 
have any Congress with anyone else who, who believes something different, but he doesn't do it in the way that like Hawthorne. And by the way, I love Hawthorne. So I'm not, I'm not making fun <laughs> of Hawthorne, but Hawthorne like had just these dreary, like, I'm just really going to depress you about how <laughs> close minded and, and depraved humanity is. Irving will make fun of people, you know, and he'll do it. He'll do it in a subtle way though. Where by the end of it, if you choose to, you can pay attention. You can be like emotionally moved by it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you just want to like have some light reading that's kind of cheeky uh, and a little sassy, like you can get that too. <laughs> but he's definitely to your to your question. He's torn. You know, he sees a world where in his his world, the early nineteenth century, is so divided and so I mean, like the Napoleonic Wars, um, the Monroe Doctrine. There's just mm -hmm. this sense of like fracture especially transatlantically, you know, there's this sense of like a widening gap between America and England, and then it also fuses back together and then it breaks again. And it's like, where are we yeah. in relationship to our people? And I was a little surprised just to add to that, that both of his parents were immigrants. Um, yeah. And yet they were seen, they were fully in favor of the, of the revolution and breaking away. So that mm -hmm. must've been difficult for them in a way. And I wonder if he kind of picked up on that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And like, obviously, you know, he, uh, his brother goes to Birmingham and is immediately at home. There's no sense of like, when we think of like the United States and Britain, they're so separate for Ir the Irving family. It just it's very blurry. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he found peace and hope and contentment in this this worldview that his family had that was very cosmopolitan um, and very open minded, even though they, you know, they weren't Emersonian or Thoreauvian, mm -hmm. you know, they weren't like very far in you know the, the progressive direction, but um, a, a famous biographer of his described him as a progressive conservative. You know, he was someone hmm. who wanted to see the world progress, but was also like keeping one foot on the brake and saying like, and let's see how it progresses and not just like jump into the water without testing it first. Yeah. And so that kind of pisses off both camps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure those words don't even mean the same thing now as they used to. No. Right? Yeah. Oh, no. Because yeah. those words were written like, I think in 2008. Oh, gosh. When, uh, I think it was Brian J. Jones um, wrote a, a really important biography of his um, and described him as a progressive conservative. And, and again, yeah, this is a very different time when that was written. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think he is a, a person who you see it in his characters. They're torn between individualism and home. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're torn between self-expression and community. Um, and they're all rootless. They're, you know, all of his protagonists are rootless people who are seeking home and often they find it and often they don't. Right. You know, and uh, it's it's heartbreaking and it's beautiful. And it also breaks my heart because of how much crap he's gotten for, you know, about 100 years, um, you know, because, you know, people just looked at him as this like this milk toast non committal guy. And I, I think he was committal, but he committed to a path that was very open-minded and yeah. chill. <laughs> He's a very chill guy. He's a radical centrist. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's a way better way to describe him than a progressive conservative. The way that you describe him, a lot of the qualities that his writing has to you, mm -hmm. they seem like things that I have gotten from reading Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, which mm -hmm. I wonder, are you familiar with that at all? Not enough to talk about, but I, I, I have heard of it and I have a general idea of what it is. 
Okay, because he, I mean, for the audience, we like to try to make book recommendations sometimes that are outside the realm of the classics. Mm -hmm. Um, Terry Pratchett, he's a British fantasy writer. He died a few years ago. He was a really great guy. And a lot of his books have that sort of broad-minded cosmopolitanism. Mm -hmm. They're set in like a a fantasy city that's sort of on the brink of an industrial revolution. But also he very much does the sort of the narrative voice of Discworld really loves people. And when people are kind of over the top and silly or like too extreme or whatever, Mm -hmm. he likes making fun of it, but he really enjoys them nonetheless. Yes. He's the anti-Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh. that That's wonderful. That's so beautiful. And I think Terry Pratchett is certainly more progressive, probably, mm-hmm. than um, Irving was. Yes. But he's also progressive in a way like, oh, aren't people so interesting? They're all so different. Like, let's just let them be how they want to be and see mm-hmm. what happens, yeah. which, you know, translates to progressivism a lot of the time. Yeah. I think that's a really, like, that describes Irving really well. Mm-hmm. With some rare exceptions he's not perching someone up for this big humiliating crushing fall Mm -hmm. he enjoys them and he loves like the word that comes to my mind is eccentric he loves Mm -hmm. eccentric people Mm -hmm. delights (laughs) in eccentric people so much so that he created his own alter egos that were all weirdly eccentric people yeah super eccentric (laughs) people yeah and i think you know you look at um his experiences in england in different ways and, and the continent as well but in different ways, I think that he both saw Europeans as very eccentric and Americans as very eccentric. <laughs> and when they merge, it's these, you know, different types of eccentricity. But at the root of it, it's like, you know, people are all like wherever you go, whether you're looking at, you know, and and so many of his stories have a root, you know, like uh, the root of history of New York is obviously Dutch New York. The sketchbook were rooted pretty firmly in Britain. Um, with some expeditions to New York and Germany. Um, Tales of a Traveler is very German and Italian. Um, Alhambra is obviously very Spanish. Um, But they all have the same archetypes. And I think he's saying something about society that all of our societies, all of our cultures have frauds. They all have Mm -hmm. hopeful romantics. They all have, you know, underdogs. They all have people who who want more in their life. They have people who are repressing people. You know, there's oppression, there's um, desire, mm-hmm. but it's universal, you know, and obviously he, he sticks to, you know, a Eurocentric culture. But I think the message still permeates, especially for that time, because even then it was like, well, my Eurocentric culture is better than your Eurocentric culture. <laughs> right. And what he's trying to communicate is all people have these universal feelings and, and urgings and desires. And the when we get stuck up in roles and in destinies, um, we limit our potential. Mm-hmm. And I think you, especially like in things like Rip Van Winkle, that comes out really strongly. And obviously we're not talking about that, but um, <laughs> it, it sounds like you either have or will um, talk about Rip Van Winkle. And I think that really delves into yeah. um, this idea of like, you know, you there are choices in life that you can make and there are costs to those choices to live authentically. Mm-hmm. And it, th- that, again, it goes to kind of the tragedy and optimism that he so deftly 
holds in balance. Well, I, I'm curious, when did you first start reading Washington Irving? And were you picking up on these things when you first started? Or did that take time? Um, yeah, that's a fantastic question. So my first exposure to him was when I was four years old, my daycare, because it, it was like, <laughs> I guess that would, yeah, no, 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 not, not Washington <laughs> Irving proper. Um, my daycare. Wishbone? No, close. It was uh, the Bing Crosby, Walt Disney, Legend of Sleepy mm, Hollow. Okay. Which yes. honestly is a little bit intense. Um, but yeah. it was like, I guess that'd be 1991. So they're kind of like, well, it's Disney. It's fine. Even though it's like, it's pretty terrifying, you know, for right. a four-year-old. Like if you saw but, like uh, <laughs> the old, like Snow White from the forties, fucking scary, really scary. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah. But at any rate, like we watched it and I was like, I don't know what it was about. I think there's this sense of like this community mm-hmm. that you can, you can bond with if you choose to, and they'll protect you. If you reject them and say, I'm doing it my own way, I, I'm striking on my own. Um, I don't need this community. You know, I'll make my own way in the world and, and choose my own path in a way that, that is a, a little bit, it, it clashes some with like, say, Rip Van Winkle, but it's, it, it had this vibe about it that I was like, what a, a nice place. Mm-hmm. You know, where you have this resource if you choose, but, you know, Ichabod Crane doesn't choose to use that resource. He strikes out by himself, you know, as a kind of an ultimate individualist. Yeah. The resource you're talking about being just staying a schoolmaster, not I would say, having these aspirations or no? I would say so. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to interpret Ichabod. I think Ichabod is a little bit, <laughs> if we had a, a modern analog, I think he would be like a venture capitalist. He's like a guy. <laughs> He'd be a tech bro. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, he, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. You know, he rolls into a place he has no skin in. They welcome him. They, you know, they make him part of the community. But the whole time he's like, I know how to make money off of this. Because yeah. <laughs> um, there's a, a little remembered line in Legend of Sleepy Hollow that I think changes the whole interpretation of it where, like, he's daydreaming about, like, I'm so I'm going to sell this farm. I'm going to marry Katrina, sell this farm, liquidate it, take that money, move to Kentucky, propagate there. <laughs> yeah, you know. build some stuff there and then become like a real estate guy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Become a real estate guy. So but I think like as a four year old watching it, just like there was this this feeling of like, oh, I should pay attention. Oh, you know, he he didn't learn his <laughs> I lessons. I should become so. a real estate guy. <laughs> no, no, didn't want to do that. I was like, I want to be one. I want to be like sensitive to the lessons that like you hear in your community. Huh. And, and so anyway, I was so into it that the uh, the daycare provider her son was reading the legend of sleepy hollow in high school and he was like i've got this paperback you know and and i'm done with it if you want it so he gave it to me if if you want to like draw all over it you know like any other four-year-old would (laughs) yeah i don't know what it was but you know because obviously it had no pictures in it it was you know but like i had my mom read it to me and it had all these crazy words like coquette and cranium and stuff like that that i was like i don't know what that means but like i'm cool with it this is interesting i'm digging it (laughs) so that was um pretty much my only experience with irving until i was like maybe 10 or 12 years old and and i read rip van winkle Mm -hmm. um in a textbook and then after that i got the sketchbook and so i probably first read like something other than the legend of sleepy hollow um or rip van winkle when i was like maybe 14 okay um and but as i read it like i did pick up on you know to, to your original question i did pick up on these feelings of like these communities they both shelter and also restrain people they're both wholesome and life-giving but also limiting um and then the individuals within them 
Like they can both strike out for adventure and for self-fulfillment, but they also make themselves vulnerable um, and a slave to their own kind of inner demons. Cause obviously like this has nothing to do with literature, but there's a kind of a psychological concept that I've Ooh. taken to heart. Uh, it's an adage that kind of says, you know, when you leave a job, you leave that job, but you take you with you. When you leave a place, you leave that place, but you take you with you. So like, you know, a lot of times I think we're, driven to kind of like, well, I'm ditching this. Like, you know, I'm out. This is, this is tiresome. I'm, I'm over it. But if the problem was really inside, mm. then you take you with yeah. you. You could take the boy out of the city, but you can't take the city out of the boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to ask exactly. about that construction, but like, I have never heard it phrased that way, Jackie. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You just replace city with anything, right? The boy out of the city. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, is was that also like your first introduction to like just creepy, spooky stuff? I mean, because yes. yeah. I'm, cre- I'm a creepy, spooky person, but I admit, I, I have not. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, hey, I'm, I'm emailing this guy. I don't care if you guys say yes or not. <laughs> but of course, I haven't thought as deeply about it. I really love the aesthetics of it. And I love mm-hmm. I love like the subversiveness. And I love, mm-hmm. you know, just like you, but like you said, there there are these like moments that can be weirdly hopeful or yeah. you know, weirdly like heart. What's the word? Heart touching, mm-hmm. touching, just t- just touching. I don't know. Heartwarming. Sure. Heartwarming. Heartwarming. There you yeah, go. There you go. Yeah. And Ichabod is like, it interested me how he is like, loving ghost stories and loves to listen to yes. them and reads all about witches, but is also like terrified. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was another thing that really grabbed me about the story was like, as a little boy watching it, I was just like, this is so cool. But then, you know, you turn the lights off and you go upstairs to your room mm-hmm. and you watch the shadows on the wall and you're like, Oh crap. Like maybe yeah. I shouldn't watch that movie. And like he, he kind of <laughs> did himself in by like being attracted to this thing that ultimately he couldn't handle. <laughs> yeah. It, it it consumed him. It was this, and I mean, there's so much uh, visual language in the story about consumption and, you know, overconsumption, gluttony. Yes. Eating. He's constantly hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Washington says, or Washington, my buddy, Washington. <laughs> wash. Yeah. Wash. Uncle Wash. He says, you know, he had the dilating powers of an anaconda. Yeah. And then he also parallels that, like, not just suggestively, he overtly says, like, and in the same way that he's gorging on food. He also had this rapacious appetite for ghost stories and Mm. legends and all these things. Mm. But then what he fails to do is everyone else, like they go home together, you know, and obviously he has a different situation because he's a bachelor, but everyone else, they take those stories and then they go home and they're probably talking about them. And then they go to their rooms and then they move on. Yeah. And then they move on, (laughs) but he leaves by himself and then he just broods over this on his walk home. You know, and again, not to get too literal about like, well, he had to do that. I think what Irving is telling us is that there are um, ID fixes that we can get, um, you know, just obsessions that when we dwell on them too much, they consume us. And I think like ultimately what what he does with that is he says like the big problem with him is that he got obsessed with marrying Katrina and what she represents is it's not like the love of his life. It's material stability and social power. Yeah. And we talked about how, you know, he describes her as, as a food item almost, you know? Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. The, the de- delectably dimpled hand of Katrina. Van Tassel. <laughs> you know, he doesn't view her as a human being. And, and it's also interesting, you know, this story it's uh, adapted so frequently. And I think, 
Americans in particular have a great love of underdogs. Mm -hmm. And I think like it's such an archetypal story. Like when I taught this, because I would always teach this to my classes, it was really quick for them to figure out, oh, okay, so this is like the jock cheerleader <laughs> nerd. <laughs> nerd triad. Like that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more complicated than that because like, you know, the older I got, the more I was like, is Brom Bones the good guy? You know, and I think like, I think he, Brom Bones is totally open to criticism, but he has the, the uh, saving grace of any Irving character, which is that he's sincere and mm -hmm. he, he's authentic. Mm -hmm. I always thought it's interesting that when they're doing the dance, Ichabod's with Katrina and Brombo's is in the corner. Irving says he he's sitting in the corner brooding, smitten with love and jealousy. And he leads with love, you know, because it's not that he's just jealous. He also loves Katrina. Right. And I think uh, Katrina, she engineers the whole thing. <laughs> As women always do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so dastardly. <laughs> in, in a way that... You know, she she's like, you know, because obviously this isn't medieval, you know, France or something like that. Like, it's not going to be an arranged marriage. She still has mm -hmm. a right to choose her spouse. But there's still social conventions that are preventing her from saying like, hey, Brom, like, let's just get together. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she says, well, you know, I know you really well. And I know him really well. And I know what you'll do if I do this. And so she. So she uses. Yeah. I almost said Irving. She uses Ichabod. <laughs> yeah. Well. Maybe. I mean, yeah, there's definitely parallels. <laughs> yeah, she uses Ichabod or maneuvers him in a way that gets Brahm to behave in the way that he needs to. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. he also has a duty to their community to, you know, like he, he represents Sleepy Hollow. Um, one of the kind of, oh, what's the word for, I guess, like structuralist things that I picked up on in um, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is that there's only two times when a word is fully capitalized. It's Sleepy Hollow and Brom Bones. The, when Irving types those out, he capitalizes them. And that's on purpose yeah. because he's saying they're the same thing. That's interesting. Mm. He is the heir to the Sleepy Hollow way of life, you know, and he has a duty to pony up, mm -hmm. um, no pun intended, <laughs> and be responsible to Katrina and to, you know, stopping. Uh, you know, a party boy and like get his act together. Yeah. Local boy makes good kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. So Katrina has to be the one who finally engineers it. And I think it's really significant yeah. that she rejects Ichabod before Brom chases him out of town. Cause ultimately I think he would have left anyway. I think Katrina did the whole thing, <laughs> yeah. but then Brom adds that, that final romantic flourish of chasing him out. Because I had to do something that works for both episodes, so I'll just say. Oh, okay. Boo! Spooky. <gasps> Dutch. Are you enjoying what you're listening to, everyone? Yeah. Well, why don't you... Oh, here's a good idea. I got a good idea for you. Go on patreon.com slash fire the cannon. Uh -huh. Select the highest rewards tier you can. Just give us as much money per month as you can possibly do. Then go to sleep for 20 years. <laughs> totally forget about it. Yeah. Make sure you pick your credit card with the highest credit limit. And the latest expiration date. <laughs> yeah. You said, I want this to work for both episodes, so you're, <laughs> you're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I assume the other one's about the same thing. Yeah. Um, okay. If you do $3 or more a month, that gets you access to all of our bonus content. All of it. For the price of a used 
Frogger 3D CD-ROM, mm-hmm. you can have access to every single additional giggle we have to offer. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, I think that might be better than a used Frogger CD-ROM. Yeah, you don't want that. Yeah. It's got scratches. Well, we're talking Frogger 3D. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh Frogger oh, okay, 3D is okay, pretty okay. good. Yeah. That game saved my life in second grade. <laughs> Yes, I don't know. Maybe you should buy that instead. No, no, no. The ice level is too hard. The ice level is too hard. It's so slippery. You're sliding all over the freaking place. It's really hard for that reason. It really is. Y'all ever seen ice? Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Never. Join a Patreon. What's a good episode that we should promote? Oh, there is one about um about Shakespeare. Yeah. About Shakespeare being fake. We really appreciate the support. We love it. Helps our beards grow. <laughs> that one's also for Sleepy Hollow. It helps our roofs stay up, unlike somebody's. Mm-hmm. We got a brand new patron, and we're so excited. His name is Tom. Q Confetti. Yay! Yay, Tom! We thank you so much, Tom, and we hope you're enjoying all of that sweet bonus content. Mm-hmm. I have a fun fact. Uh-oh. Oh, gosh. Tom, his name, backwards... Is Mott. That is fun. Try that one on for size. What's really weird is I was about to guess that was what you're going to say. What? That's crazy. <laughs> We're on the same wavelength. <laughs> well, yeah. if only you had, we could have trusted you. Anyway, we love you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Mott, next. That's thank you backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. All right. That's not backwards. I'm sorry. Back to the episode. It's been a while since we've had an episode where I was, like, so silly I couldn't control it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Back to the episode. Back to the episode. (laughs) (laughs) So so I wanted to ask two things. I think we're going to ask the same thing. We're going to ask the same thing, which is in our last (laughs) recording, which was the Sleepy Hollow episode, Mm -hmm. Jackie and I got in this huge fight. (laughs) Yeah, we were pulling each other's hair out. For a literature podcast, (laughs) we got in a huge fight (laughs) where I said, obviously, Brom Bones, he's fine. The narrator is like, he's a decent guy. He Mm -hmm. did not murder Ichabod Crane, Mm -hmm. throw his body in the river, and then laugh (laughs) about it when he heard Mm -hmm. later. And Jackie's like, Mm -hmm. I think he murdered him. No, I'm not saying that he did. I'm saying it is left open. I think there is. Sure. Yeah. It's open. I think it's a possibility. I said twenty percent chance of murder, eighty percent chance Ichabod went to the city. Mm. But you fought me on it for a while before you're finally like, yeah, I agree. Irving definitely leaves that open to yes, you know you. interpretation. I count that as a win for me. <laughs> There's also a do not. There's also a chance that it was a spooky ghost. You know, I was, like I was just about to say that. that yeah. <laughs> no one, no one who studies it seriously ever talks about it that way. But like that's the thing at the end. You know, where the uh, the guy in the salt and pepper suit. You know, he drinks his beer and he's finished telling his story. And you know, he's like he's questioned about. Well, you know, I have some problems with this story. I I'm not sure which half to believe. And he says, well, you know, frankly, I don't know which half I believe either. Right. (laughs) You know, there's definitely a lot that's open to interpretation. And I will not argue, I think, that like Brom Bones is, you know, this great guy necessarily. But I think that Katrina takes charge of the situation and kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. forces him to become what he's supposed to be, you know, um, which is a responsible guy. And he also might be a murderer. It's possible. <laughs> I think, though, because Irving has 
one of the worst fates um, engineered for Ichabod. I was going to say, you said, oh yeah, Irving like basically never like has this huge humiliating fall from grace. Except for, except and, for and I did say with Ichabod, Ichabod. Now yeah. there's, there's a couple others um, that are, are definitely significant, but usually at the end of these stories, like the person, they have their comeuppance, but then they're, they're shaken into reality and they, they move on. You know, you have like, um, golden dreams. Oh, there was another one that was just on the tip of my tongue. The, the specter bridegroom. Um, you know, a lot of these stories where someone does kind of get humiliated, but then they laugh it off and they realize why they've been silly and they move on. And I don't think Ichabod does that. He gets pretty, pretty humiliated. He gets pretty murdered. Um, no, <laughs> Jackie. I, I think though, that the Irving has the, uh, the worst fate possible for Ichabod because he, sets him up as the thing he hated most, which um, his destiny is to become a petty politician, a, uh, you know, a petty law clerk or whatever, you know, he's on the the 10 pound court. So he's doing small claims, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what, when he was a young man um, before he went to Europe, like he studied law, he he was a lawyer Mm -hmm. for a real hot minute, you know, (laughs) and he hated it. He hated it because it was, you know, he wanted to be around people. He wanted to be mobile um, and he hated the life of just like pouring over inane bullcrap that doesn't yeah. have any significance. And so this is what presumably, or, or at least 80% possibility, Ichabod ends up doing is becoming this petty <laughs> politician and a small claims court clerk and all this stuff. Hating the law is is something that a lot of the authors we cover <laughs> have in common. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Kafka also became a lawyer and hated it. Yeah. Yeah. In the early 19th century, I mean, you basically had a handful of occupations to choose from. And, you know, if you were brainy, it was like, well, you're either going to the church, Mm. medicine or law. Um, And so fortunately, a lot of the the folks that we study were able to make a a fourth way. But um, (laughs) sometimes people might have had that potential, but they, you know, they didn't get out. Right. So they were stuck in some crappy job. That's what I found so refreshing about Rob. Robert Frost was it's like this guy's a farmer <laughs> yeah oh gosh yeah, yeah. so nice <laughs> so wholesome one of my favorite poets um Jack Gilbert who is not nearly as well known as Robert Frost but he actually got admitted to his MFA program due to a clerical error wow oh, good for him yeah he shouldn't have gotten in but uh they whoops didn't have computers so <laughs> yeah um I was gonna ask you know just with our remaining time um one of yeah. the things that I really wanted to chat with you about because I this was mm-hmm. kind of one of the things I couldn't find anywhere else uh, Washington Irving's sexuality and romantic life, or lack thereof. Um, yeah. <laughs> what did he do? Because I find this so interesting that, like, he he didn't marry, but he didn't seem, like, that broken up about it. Um, maybe he was asexual. Maybe he was a romantic. Mm-hmm. Probably not, because he was in love with, you know, um, his first fiancé, it seems like. but mm-hmm. Or his only fiancé. But, uh yeah, it, it just is so interesting to me that, like, because you said he, well, he never committed, but in fact, he did commit, just mm-hmm. not to what most people commit to. Yeah. And I found that really refreshing. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, when Brian J. Jones released his biography, and again, I think that was in 2008, it was one of the first ones that postulated that, you know, he might have been bisexual or homosexual. And, you know, it, it was kind of like, oh, are we trying to just, you know, get on what was at the time, I think, a trend. But since then, there have been, I think, two or three other authors that have, you know, looked at the same writings and and the same history and said, yeah, it seems like this was 
um, a guy who was torn in another way, you know, in his sexuality that he felt bifurcated there as well. Um, because he definitely, so later in life, I think the saddest episode in his entire life, and, and there's many sad episodes, his, his oh, life no. is actually, yeah, his life is actually really sad. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, he's he's not there when tragic things happen to his family. He wants to be there, but he's across the ocean. But the saddest thing was when he was, I think, 41 years old, he proposed to a much younger woman. I think her name was Emily Foster. She was 18. This was in, in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. And she was like the daughter of a British consulate. You know, she rejected him in a way that was just like undeniably Ichabod-esque. And I think oh. he had to carry that with him. You think that's sadder than the death of his initial fiance well see matilda hoffman i don't think that he was like deeply in love with her i think he was torn oh by my it. gosh i had this all backwards <laughs> no 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 you know you, you can you can um check multiple biographies because obviously that was the the narrative for the longest time mm. and i think it was overblown in the 19th century because it was pretty obvious that there was something um, the word would have been peculiar about his living arrangement. The narrative was, well, he was so devastated by Matilda Hoffman's death that he just like, he, he never loved again. Yeah. And I think, yeah, he definitely loved Matilda Hoffman, but that wasn't the love of his life. I think the love of his life was Emily Foster. What, what happened with them? Yeah. He became very close with her abroad and like kind of formed an attachment to her. I think he saw in her his last opportunity to have a conventional life, you know, with a family and a wife and stuff like that. And so he, he became his puppy love, you know. Um, and by the way, before I, I'm going to interrupt myself real quickly, and I'm not sure if you know that what uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley had a deep crush on. Yes, him. <laughs> I wanted to ask that, too. I'm so glad that's real. <laughs> yeah, she was super into him and uh, he rejected her. What? Yeah, yeah. Which he should have accepted her. I'm sorry, but that was his biggest mistake. She would have been much happier if she hadn't married Percy Bish. Yeah. And, and this happened before um, Emily Foster. But yeah, essentially, he snugged up to their family. They got really close. The whole family like loved him. They treat him like an uncle. Um, but then one night he proposes to her, or at least that's what we, you know, there's, there's other sources that suggest this. Uh, there's information missing from his diary at the time mm -hmm. um, that he presumably destroyed. He's like, oh, we don't need, we don't need to remember this. <laughs> yeah. He describes walking home and he, he uses the word depressed. So, I mean, which back in the day, like, you know, usually low spirits or like of a melancholy, just, no, he said like, you know, very depressed or quite depressed. Whoa. And so, and that's to, that's kind of the bookend of his romantic life in the middle there's all these really close male friends that he has. They they had this, oh, what was it? There, there was a, a manor on the Hudson River that they nicknamed Cockloft Hall. Oh, excuse um, me? Yeah. And, and I mean, at the time, it's not just like, well, that's a funny quinky dink. Like at the time, there would have been an innuendo mm -hmm. uh, assumed there, Cockloft Hall. Man sex hall, basically. Yeah, it was where all these, uh, these single professional class bachelors would hang out and have cuddle puddles. Um, and I, I don't mean that demeaningly. They literally would like snug up on the floor huh. um, and hang out and wrestle and do stuff like that. Uh -huh. And so he had these really close relationships with these guys, but then they all one by one would get married. Wow. His closest friend was um, Henry Brevoort. And this guy is the, the people who subscribe to the theory that Irving was bisexual think that this guy deeply broke his heart because he was his absolute best friend through life until there came a moment when he got married 
And he was basically like, we can't be as close as you want us to be. We can't be in the cuddle puddle at Cockloft anymore. Yeah, we can't be in the cuddle puddle anymore. And I mean, I just got engaged recently. And when I get married, that's what I'm saying to these guys. We can't be this close anymore. (laughs) You can't be in the cuddle puddle. Yeah. And and obviously, you know, the the letters that they exchange, there's nothing like, you know, that's so revealing that it's just obvious. But yeah, modern scholarship suggests that it's almost a certain thing that he was at least bisexual. Mm. The Matilda Hoffman and Emily Foster episodes, to me, do suggest that he's probably bisexual. But I think that's just one more example of a life that is bifurcated. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's like he's part American, part European, he's he's part good old boy hanging out with the country folk, part city slicker. Mm-hmm. There's all these ways that he can kind of like, and I think this is what makes him such, the message that I see in him, which is so open-minded and cosmopolitan and just like let people be who they are. I think it's because he's a deeply empathetic person who could see where people were coming from, but never was like, this is my conviction that boom, this is the way to do it. Yeah, I'm or, right. This is right. the way to believe. <laughs> yeah. He was always like, I don't know, like maybe I'm wrong. Like, you know, I see where they're coming from. And so I think, you know, if there's more scholarship and I do believe that um, there's a very stilted Irving Renaissance going on, it's not got a lot of momentum, but I think it's moving forward. Oh, we're helping with that. We're going to make it happen. And I'm personally grateful to you for that. because <laughs> I'm joking. I, that's very self-important of us. But yeah. you are contributing to it, though. At least you're talking about him. But I think I think more scholarship is going to shed increasing light on. Um, the likelihood that, you know, his sexuality was something that also is just not talked about because mm-hmm. um, the the big, deep narrative was he was just young 20s guy. His first fiance died and that was it. And that's just not I don't think a very realistic yeah. picture of how grief works in a young person. I think they you know, they're broken hearted, but they they move on. They still, you know, want to date and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, he's just a very internally divided figure, and it fits very closely with everything else in his life. Mm-hmm. Even apart from that, though, honestly, like, I don't necessarily think his entanglements with women even mean that he was bisexual. Yeah. Because sure. if you think of a gay man who yeah. is, like, drawn to the idea of a traditional family life, one of the most obvious things he could do is, like, yeah. try to convince a teen to marry him, mm-hmm. you know? Because it's like, obviously not, man. <laughs> well, then why would he not just accept Mary Wollstonecraft, you know? If he wanted to just be like, yeah, I guess I'm not attracted to women, but I'll just take yeah, one. And- lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I will say, because um, my my theory with that is that, I mean, obviously by the time he's 41 and with Emily Foster, he's kind of like, this is do or die. Like, either mm. I have a normal life or I don't. But his entire life, he really despised the idea of marriage just because he wanted to be a flexible person. He wanted, I don't want to have to like consult with my spouse about where I go tonight. Mm. Um, He loved that Liberty, but you see in his fiction, you know, like that he's also very self-critical of that kind of impulse. Like, Rip Van Winkle, you know, I mean, yeah, it works out for him, but I mean, read that story two or three times in a row and it's a very sad story. It it has a sad ending. Yeah, it took one time for me. I was like, oh, you just go and sleep until your wife dies and then you're like, whew, dodged a bullet, you know? We, the three of us said it wouldn't have been a happy ending for anyone else except Rip Van Winkle. (laughs) Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Now, Brian J. Jones, again, he's the the gentleman who wrote the. I think it's just called Washington Irving, um, a life mm. or a biography. I think, but he uh, he postulates that he was homosexual, just overtly gay, and I think that makes a lot of sense to me. 
I only say um, bisexual just because I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously even that is kind of like, you know, well, who knows? You know, and I don't want to necessarily project my views onto his um, sex life. But I definitely don't think that he was just a, uh, you know, a, a very conformist heterosexual guy. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. there was something um, a little bit more complex in his sexuality. And and I think there's, you know, it's always worth, you know, thinking about the distinction between, like I said, sexuality and romanticism, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, from, you know, other things that I've read as well, seemed like he might have been, like, deeply disturbed by sex in general. Now, is, oh, yes. who knows the reason for that? But, I mean, you can mm-hmm. be, you know, attracted to multiple genders and yet not want to have sex with any of them, you know. So, like, mm-hmm. whatever he was, I think, you know, was um, complex. And I, I think yeah. that complexity, like you said, really comes through in his writing. He could have been a sex repulsed gay man who was hetero romantic right. like <laughs> there are like 20 different options for him <laughs> I was gonna say that's that's the most accurate thing I've heard um, <laughs> to describe Irving wow yeah, that's <laughs> the most accurate thing yeah, yeah. tip my hat to the woke once <laughs> again yeah yeah no that's just so fascinating I know we're kind of coming up on the end of our time but um of course always you know welcome to hear any other thoughts that you wanted to share mm-hmm. whether about Sleepy mm-hmm. Hollow or Irving or Rip Van Winkle yeah can I just ask so Ichabod Crane, Rip Van Winkle, mm-hmm. great names. Are there any <laughs> other great names from his stories that you can Oh, think? my gosh. Jeez. There's so many. Like, honestly, um, I do love Wolfert Weber. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he has a thing for alliterations. Brom Bones. <laughs> Brom Bones. That's pretty good. Yeah, Brom Bones is alliterative. Uh, Dolph Heiliger is another favorite name of mine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He really he's really good at that. And then uh, and this is something like Charles Dickens was obsessed with him, just loved him. I was literally about to say he was like Charles Dickens with the names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have very similar name um, generation where, you know, they'll, they'll just come up with a go- really funny, interesting sounding name. Arthur Conan Doyle also had a, a knack for mm. that, except they were less funny and more just like, how weird, you know, it's always like <laughs> Smith Davis Howell or something like that. But yeah, Irving, you know, definitely had a knack for like, again, eccentricities. And I think his characters, which, by the way, to, to kind of plug this a little bit into our, our pr- prior conversation, he, he has a great range for camp. Mm-hmm. His uh, stories are tremendously campy, and his characters are tremendously campy. But yeah, Ichabod Crane, Brom Bones, yeah. uh, Dolph Heiliger, these are all like really hilarious names. And, and we <laughs> talked about how, you know, we actually looked up the meaning of the name Ichabod, and, and apparently the yeah, meaning of it glorious. is, where, yeah, where's the glory? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's perfect. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very descriptive. Yeah. Um, and that was another thing that Dickens would do is that, um, a lot of times it, it helps to like look up what does that name mean because there'll be some like hidden thing in it. Like even like not not to get way off topic, but like Scrooge is this old English word that means like tightly wound or yeah. something like that. So <laughs> oh. so could I then take that the opposite way and refer to um, that movie as like Ichabodian bastards? You know, can we <laughs> <Yeah>. just- <laughs> but yeah, definitely like. Ichabod is is such an inglorious guy and his his downfall. I I think like like I said before, the adaptations that we we've had in the last, you know, however long we've had movies and stuff like that. I guess mm-hmm. Will Rogers was the first guy to play Ichabod Crane. And starting with Will Rogers, you know, who's a famous uh, you know, cowboy actor, there's this this tendency to make him this, you know, poor underdog. Mm-hmm. And I am totally open to that interpretation. That's totally fine. I feel that he's primarily intended to be viewed as kind of like almost a Shakespearean villain. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with like Twelfth Night, 
But um, there's a character in that called Malvolio <laughs> who always reminds me of Ichabod because he's just this, <laughs> this like slippery, flirtatious, yeah. creepy dude who just like <laughs> insinuates himself into people's lives and is, you know, and he's just real lecherous and creepy. And yeah, Malvolio though, that sounds like such a nice name. Sounds like such a good <laughs> person. Yeah, 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 malevolent. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think I think Ichabod can be viewed in an underdog way. Like, obviously, they did that with the Johnny Depp movie. Um, but <laughs> I used to love that movie, too, which is so dumb because it wasn't even good. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it obviously has nothing to do with the actual story. Yeah. But it's, you know, he's an interesting character. And I think the thing with him and Katrina and Brahm is very complicated. And it's way less cut and dry than we like because we really like the jock nerd cheerleader triad and we always root for the nerd and he's not a nerd he is a a carpetbagger you know he's this yeah. guy <laughs> reverse carpetbagger <laughs> yeah yeah he comes to colonize you know or to gentrify sleepy hollow and then liquidate it and move on and you know they're like no not on our watch yeah um, and that's why like the uh, i think there's significance in you know the fact that well i think the legend of sleepy hollow is that we're we'll welcome you with open arms but if you try to if you try to like yeah snap us out of like this culture that we've generated around ourselves then we will bite you Mm -hmm. um because you see that's what they did with the horseman he was an invader who came to subjugate them that's what they did with major andre Mm -hmm. he was a spy who came you know and got caught historically in sleepy hollow he was captured in sleepy hollow um in 1780 hmm. um and you know it's like so yeah the, the legend is people who screw with us they meet bad ends they meet bad yeah. ends they're gonna get got <laughs> yeah yeah but at the same time i don't think it's this kind of like no nothing nationalist like we hate immigrants type thing because they're really warm and inviting to ichabod until he turns against them and yeah you know has shown himself to be uh, a skis so yeah and and i mean we we had kind of joked as well about like hey it's kind of cool that like you know he can kind of get in there and hang with the ladies you know because oh, yeah. he's not threatening he's just like a tall skinny guy and he's nerdy so like <laughs> they can hang out and the other guys in the town are like mm-hmm. oh i don't like this you know and in <laughs> some ways it's like that's kind of cool but then in, then you're like yeah maybe they were seeing something in him that was a little predatory mm-hmm. or or at least um taking advantage yeah yeah well, I've got to ask you a final question. Yeah, go for it. The premise of the podcast, the conceit of the podcast, is mm-hmm. supposed to be the three of us, we're covered in coal dust, whatever, we're loading books into the metaphorical canon. Mm-hmm. And we decide, are we firing these things out of the canon, mm-hmm. or are we leaving them in? The canon is getting really full, too. Like, we haven't fired very much out of it. <laughs> so when we read Sleepy Hollow, Jackie and I said, we we mm-hmm. said, leave that bad boy in the canon. Theo said, you've got to fire it. And we said, well, we'll ask the guest. So I think I know your answer, but what do you yeah. think? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply biased, but I, I definitely <laughs> think I chose, you know, because I, I could elect what books and stories that I, I include in my class. Mm. I always chose to teach this. And the the wild, crazy conversations that generated from it with my students were always <laughs> so surprising because, you know, they would glom onto some of these ideas of like community and class and gender and colonization, even like, you know, intranational colonization, one region onto another. And it's all these different themes. 
And I think anything that is that rich, and obviously that's just my experience with my students, um, albeit over you know eight years, I just don't think that's something we want to ditch quite yet. Yeah. And there's other stories, I will say, there's other stories I would, and I can't um, remember the names because I'm sure you'll ask, but I do remember <laughs> some stories that were just total flops, and I was like, oh, I'm not using this one again. <laughs> so I would definitely keep it. Well, it's interesting to get that teacher perspective. Yeah. And I had even characterized Rip Van Winkle as like YA at one point, and, you know, just because like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's like a fantasy thing and young kids can read it. Yeah. But you showed like even at four years old, like you can get something out of this. Yeah. And also just, you know, this is a real kind of like the curtains are blue story, right? Like mm-hmm. you, there's no real accidental symbolism in here. It, yes. It's a good way to learn how to read stories, I think. I'll give you one parting um, since you brought up symbolism. Um, one thing that I think um, is has been its saving grace, why it's still remembered is because um, Irving accidentally used the vegetable that we associate with Halloween. A pumpkin. Because Halloween's never mentioned um, in the 1820s. They used turnips. Turnips were used as jack-o'-lanterns. Mm-hmm. Why he uses a pumpkin is because pumpkins were kind of the associated vegetable with New England. Oh. And so essentially what Brom Bones mm. is doing is saying, like, go back to pumpkin town. Oh. <laughs> um, and and, and um, Knickerbocker's History of New York, he uses that. And I didn't realize that until I read Knickerbocker. Uh, and I was probably in like high school, but I, he kept like mentioning, you know, these pumpkin eating Bible toting Yankees <laughs> coming over here, you know, and like, the, and the Dutch would always be like, um, and, and he'd use some kind of goofy accent, but he's like, you know, you pumpkin eaters, get out of here. And, <laughs> and so I was like, oh my gosh, I never picked up on that though. Like, that's interesting. It, it'd be like throwing a hunk of cheese at a Wisconsinite, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. get back, you know, to where, you know, yeah. you people uh, plot and, and try to like ruin and take over over our communities because we're not having it. Yeah, it's so. like throwing a hush puppy at the three of us. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I yeah. was going to suggest, a hush puppy. <laughs> so he lucked into that, and I'm glad he did, because obviously, you know, like now we picture it as a jack-o'-lantern, whereas it was just, you know, kind of a head-shaped pumpkin. Well, I just figured it was head-shaped, and I thought a turnip would be so— you can't use that as a head. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter how big yeah. the turnip is. Like it, It's Too not going to be scary. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think you're wrong, because there are some giant, roundy turnips, but mm. they are rare. <laughs> Theo, did you have something you were going to say? Uh, I was just going to say, because I'm living in Texas, they would have thrown barbecue or a gun at me. <laughs> a gun? Yeah. I live in Indiana, so I'm sure it'd be like corn or a tenderloin or something like that. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's a, that's a good way to get a free meal. It's just antagonize some locals. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I know, and pumpkins are expensive, too, so I would love if someone threw a pumpkin at me. They are, yeah. I tried growing some, and I, I didn't succeed. But yeah, I was like, so I'm in Cincinnati, which is like not too far from Indiana, depending on where in Indiana right. you are. But I was like, oh, I... I do feel like the Midwest has like its own little spooky heritage. So yes, yeah, there's a lot there. Well, as a parting, as a parting, um, you know, farewell. Do you, as as opposed to the other kinds of farewells which occur in the middle or the beginning of a conversation, <laughs> arriving farewells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any special Halloween traditions or any fun Halloween plans oh that you're going to do? Gosh. What do you dress your little kid up as? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, she's she's <laughs> tossed between. I think. She, either a monkey or at one point it was a bee and then at one point it was a pumpkin so we're not sure yet Mm -hmm. but yeah we have loads of um halloween traditions just because obviously it's you know one of my favorite holidays the best holiday we watch tons of vincent price movies and we have like all all sorts of decorations and stuff of course (laughs) but 
of course, my my legit, and this isn't bullcrap, this is real. My legit Halloween tradition is I get a uh, a stein of cider and I get uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow off my bookshelf and I read it in the morning. Aww. Then I go on a walk in the woods if I can, if, you know, I have work. Off. And now I can. So, yeah. you know, being at home with my daughter, we'll, we'll go. You know, I'll read that before she gets up, and then um, at some point we'll go on a walk in the woods. Wow. So that is my Halloween tradition, and I am super excited for Halloween this year. That's awesome. And the stein of cider is first thing in the morning? Well, um, it depends. Um, no judgment. I'm- <laughs> all day long. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it, it used to be it used to be like when I got home from work, but yeah. since then it's been a little bit more like 9, 10 o'clock. I mean, it is just, <laughs> it's just cider. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really, really nice tradition. Thank you so much for coming coming on i i well, yeah. thank you for having thank me you. yeah i always say this about pretty much all of our guests but i'm like i could talk to you for like another five hours but um you know if you ever <laughs> want to come back on and chat about any spooky things in the future you are welcome yeah keep me posted because i'd love to and and i'm definitely looking forward to uh sharing you guys podcasts with Yay. you know my subscribers and, and, and getting caught up because I, <laughs> I i've listened to a couple but this is still new to me and i'm excited oh, to be you. on so thanks guys oh thanks yeah no problem that's really nice as someone who knows a lot about these topics, I would recommend that you not listen to the ones where we cover your <laughs> wheelhouse. <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but part of the the weekly podcast situation is that we do what we can to do a good job covering the material. But if you're someone who's an expert, yeah. you're going to find it very pedestrian. <laughs> I, I think we did a pretty good job based on what we talked about. Sounds like we got pretty much everything right with Washington Irving. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hey, I was going to say, I was impressed that you uh, you picked up on the old style tales thing. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah, clearly you impressed me. I, I was pleased with it, so. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I stayed up all night researching this guy. So and part of that was your website, which is helpful. And uh, uh, how do you feel about Goosebumps? I know you mentioned nineties. Uh. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. No, I love Goosebumps. I loved Are You Afraid of the Dark? Huh. Eerie Indiana. That was a short lived series that was also Ooh. really cool in the nineties. Yeah, it was kind of like um, Stranger Things. I, I don't know what it mashes with, but. But, but way, way more lo-fi and not as cool, but still pretty, pretty <laughs> interesting. Um, but yeah, definitely the 90s had so many cool things to to dig into as a kid. And it super fed my imagination as a youngster. Yeah. <laughs> that was the period where parents like couldn't keep as close of an eye on their kids as they used <laughs> yeah. to. They slipped yeah, a lot of things sure. under the radar. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Rachel and I were born in 91, Theo's 92, so we're all kind of around that mm-hmm. same area. And uh, Oh, I'm 87. Yeah, I know, because it says it on your website, like the very first thing. He's born in 87. <laughs> yeah. We have an ongoing Goosebumps series where we're we gradually do. going through all of the Goosebumps. Books. Oh, awesome. So if you want to come back for any of them. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. If you have a favorite. We'll, uh, we'll hit you up. Don't worry. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. I was just going to say that uh, Stranger Things is actually a kind of funny amalgamation of Indiana and North Carolina because it's set in Indiana, but it's based on a lot of like real places in Durham. It's based on Durham, yeah. Which is where Rachel lives. That's what I heard, yeah. Yeah. That's me. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Oh. For now, for another couple weeks, I'm about to move to Atlanta, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) see how that goes. (laughs) That's what the whole upside down is based on? Yeah, that's the upside down. (laughs) Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right, well, well, if you want to plug anything before you go, feel free, but otherwise, thank you so much for coming on. We've loved having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And just to to plug my website, um, oldstyletales.com, you can find my stuff there. And then 
I'm on um, Instagram and Facebook. I had a Twitter, but I got bored with it. <laughs> so but you can you can check out my art on Instagram, and then I do you know posts on Facebook as well. But what's your account name on Instagram? Uh, old Style Tales. Okay. Yeah, old Style Same Tales. Thing. We follow you, so um, if Thank you need you. to find his account, go to our account and find him and follow us both. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, I recommend buying buying the books. You can buy these great works of art that are annotated and uh, obviously by mm-hmm. someone who knows a lot about it. So go do it. And thank you so much. Yeah, please do. <laughs> and what's the name of the essay that you read, Jackie? Yeah, they are. Um, um, yeah. So there's um, Washington Irving's The Spectre Bridegroom, a two minute summary and literary analysis, literary analysis. There's The Devil and Tom Walker. There's yeah, there's several. Yeah, if you actually. Yeah, I can. I can make it pretty simple. If you go to oldstyletales.com backslash Irving and just scroll mm-hmm. to the bottom, there's a button that says view all essays by this author and they'll all just pull up. Yeah. And I think the Great. one that we were talking about is Washington Irving's wistfully anxious, nostalgic ghost stories. So yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming. This was really, really yes, fun and you. have a good thank rest you. of your night. Yeah, you guys take care. I think it was a great, a great interview. Me too. Great guest, great episode, great interview. Yeah. Pat on the jack for all three of us. Uh, I was just going to tell people where they can find our uh, social media. Please do. I will do it. Uh, we're at Fire the Cannon Pod at basically any social media you could want. So that's Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Oh, Twitter. Gmail, that's firethecannonpod at gmail.com. We have a website called firethecannonpod.com. Mm-hmm. We have a Facebook group. Check out the Facebook group. Go in there, comment on some things, say hi to my mom. She loves it. Yeah. She does. It's Fire the Cannon Podcast on Facebook. And for all these things, Cannon is spelled C A N O N, not yes. C A N N O N. That would be like the weapon. And we are pacifists. Pacifists. Except when it comes to beheading billionaires. Let's ignore that. <laughs> Theo's gonna cut. Very important thing that I'm gonna repeat from the interstitial is okay. if you would like to support us, please go to patreon.com slash fire the cannon. Oh yeah. And consider becoming a patron. There are many tiers. They start at three dollars a month and they go up to, I guess, infinity. And up. you know, we'd appreciate it if you like what you hear because all the money really goes to making the podcast better and sometimes making our lives better (laughs) give us infinite dollars a month you only have to sign up for one month and we'll be set yeah oh we'd love it yeah the other thing is if you would like to support us but you're not in a position to give us money right now no problem you have three things you can do rate and review us on apple podcasts give us rating on spotify and or recommend us to family friends co-workers enemies strangers whatever yeah and all of those we love them very much and we appreciate them Anyway, have a great rest of your pre-spooky season. See you next week. Pumpkin eaters. Bye. Happy Halloween. Doesn't matter if it's Halloween or not. Happy Halloween. Doesn't matter. 